Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ryan Costello of the National Iranian American Council, who examines widespread protests that have erupted across Iran after the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman who was arrested by the Islamic Republic's morality police. Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Staff Attorney Jake Love, who discusses the federal class action lawsuit his group filed against Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis for using immigrants as political props in the GOP's dirty culture war. And Patricia Joseph, an activist with the New Haven, Connecticut climate movement, who talks about her group's recent actions and demands on city government to implement proactive climate policies. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. A massive wave of violence and protest have spread across Haiti after the government announced that it would raise the country's highly subsidized fuel prices. With over 1 million Haitians in need of food aid, the situation has been compared to a low-intensity civil war. Prime Minister Ariel Henry took power following the assassination of President Jovenel Moise in July 2021. The capital city of Port-au-Prince has been cut off from the outside world, with many neighborhoods controlled by gangs and warehouses full of food aid looted. Homes of bankers and pro-government politicians have been attacked. Prominent gang leader Jimmy Cherize, known as Barbecue, called for the poor to rise up to overthrow Henry's government. Haiti is heavily reliant on food imports for basic necessities. The island nation is now suffering from a 26% inflation rate. With random violence a daily hazard, many people in Port-au-Prince are afraid to leave their homes to go to work or sell produce in the streets, as food prices have increased by over 50%. China Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan have signed a long-anticipated agreement to push ahead with a feasibility study of building a rail line to connect the three countries. The government signed the new agreement on September 14th as the summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization was being held in Uzbekistan. However, the document does not set out a timeline for construction. The project was given new urgency following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent interruption of rail routes between China and Europe. At one time, Kyrgyzstan was negotiating with Russia seeking to finance the new rail line through its territory. With the invasion of Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan is now looking to China for financing the project instead. But some foreign diplomats are skeptical the railway deal will move ahead. They noted that many nations are struggling to pay back China for development projects, and Beijing has recently begun scaling back its ambitious belt and road infrastructure program. It's been 16 months since former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison for the murder of George Floyd. The police killings of 22-year-old Amir Locke and 20-year-old Andrew Sundberg this year 
sparked outrage, albeit to a lesser extent. Despite dwindling local action, however, the battle over policing rages on in Minneapolis. The American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit against Hennepin County, the city of Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Police Department, and other agencies after officers bulldozed and used tear gas, at times without an eviction notice, against homeless encampments mostly occupied by blacks and Native Americans. In addition to monitoring protesters in 2020, police also fired rubber bullets at them, often without warning. In June 2020, the ACLU filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of journalists. The suit alleges the police department attacked reporters with pepper spray and tear gas and wrongfully threatened them at gunpoint. During Chauvin's April 2021 trial, police again displayed extreme aggression towards protesters and journalists, causing the ACLU to file a request for an injunction to stop law enforcement assaults. In February, the case was settled for $825,000, which included an order for police to stop targeting, attacking, and arresting journalists. The court will monitor police compliance for the next six years. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. More than 80 Iranian cities have exploded in protests after the death of Masa Amini, who died after the nation's notorious morality police arrested the 22-year-old woman for allegedly wearing her headscarf too loosely. Amini died on September 16th, three days after her arrest in Tehran, with many Iranians charging that she was beaten by police before she collapsed in a government-run re-education center. Iranian officials deny Amini was assaulted and claim that she died after suffering a heart attack, but her family maintains she didn't have a pre-existing heart condition. Women have been at the forefront of protests across Iran, with many burning their hijabs or headscarves in bonfires and others publicly cutting their hair. Protesters who openly condemn the Islamic Republic's restrictions on women and government leaders have clashed with riot police leaving at least 76 people dead and more than 1,200 arrested since the unrest began. This, the most serious challenge to Iran's government since the outbreak of post-election protests in 2009, comes as talks between Washington and Tehran on reviving the International Iran Nuclear Agreement have stalled. Your reporter spoke with Ryan Costello, policy director with the National Iranian American Council who examines the grievances behind the widespread protests in Iran and the determination of young people to change a system where many believe they have no future. 
It's a really fast evolving uh, situation. And, uh, you know, I think what's uh, one of the most remarkable things is that it's uh, largely led by Iranian youth. This is uh, the future of their country, and they are standing up and protesting in, uh, you know, a way that hasn't been seen in Iran in years. Uh, you know, you can go back suddenly to the 2009 Green Movement. Um, which had, you know, I, I think similar levels of, of mass mobilization uh, across society, but those were centered on, you know, uh, a rigged election, essentially. This is more of an outright rejection of the status quo and uh, the Nizam or the Iranian uh, political system as a whole. And, you know, women are at the forefront here as well. Masamini, 22 years old, um, never should have been arrested in the first place, uh, but was targeted uh, for improper hijab or uh, kind of like an Islamic uh, covering of your hair um, and uh, brought in, in a, a police van to a station and allegedly beaten in that police van uh, so badly that she collapsed in the station, uh, developed a coma, and then died on uh, September 16th. So this really lit the flames of, uh, you know, the protests and uh, ignited uh, the, the really fierce resentment that's been building among the Iranian people toward the uh, government of Iran for quite some time. Ryan, there are many defenders of this theocratic regime and others across the world who impose strict limitations on women, justifying it by the Bible or the Quran and other religious texts. Do we have a situation in Iran where the culture has changed over these many years since uh, the Islamic Republic was established after the overthrow of the Shah of Iran? Well, I think, you know, it's a little bit hard for us to say outside of the country, uh, you know, exactly, you know, what are the, the sources of this and so forth. I, you know, I think there's certainly the grievances of these day-to-day -day encounters and the, the death of a young woman that's with the flame. Uh, I, you know, and I think it's uh, important not to get too much into, you know, kind of some of the Islamophobic critiques of the system and so forth. But uh, you know, on the ground in Iran, they're both, you know, hijabis, women who voluntarily, uh, you know, wear shador or, uh, you know, hijab in public, who object to this uh, mandatory hijab just as much as, uh, you know, maybe younger women who are uh, leading the charge on unveiling in public and uh, participating in these protests. It's, it's kind of both sides of the spectrum. It's, you know, people who would personally choose to wear it and, and others who, uh, you know, would not uh, if it weren't uh, mandatory and enforced by state and, and, you know, in some instances, you know, fatal violence. Um, so, but I do think there's, you know, maybe not a cultural change, but a generational change happening in terms of this youngest population, uh, you know, kind of 18 to, you know, early 20s, the Generation Z of Iran, that's, uh, you know, reportedly being uh, the main uh, spearhead of these protests and so forth. I think they have, you know, grown up and they've seen uh, absolutely no outlets for change uh, in their lifetimes uh, with the Islamic Republic. Uh, that if they don't make something happen uh, themselves, they're going to be under the system their entire lives, and they're willing to put their lives on the line for that change, which is really 
I think, quite remarkable when you think about the bravery that it takes to, uh, you know, violate these laws at risk of arrest, uh, you know, murder in the streets, um, torture in Iranian prisons. Uh, you know, they're standing up for their future. And, uh, you know, I think it's incumbent on the entire world, uh, you know, those of us in the United States, the diaspora to continue to speak up and, and condemn uh, these human rights abuses and, uh, you know, try to figure out a way to uh, support them, but, uh, you know, continue to allow the Iranian people to lead these organic protests. I think what's been remarkable is it seems like the reaction of the people on the ground in Iran is basically, don't tell me the odds. It doesn't matter what the odds are of success. We still need to fight for our rights and a better future because it's the right thing to do. And if we die, we die. That was Ryan Costello policy director with the National Iranian American Council. Find more analysis and commentary on the new wave of protests in Iran by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On September 14th, 50 asylum seekers, many from Venezuela, unexpectedly arrived in two planes on the Massachusetts vacation island of Martha's Vineyard. Right-wing Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was behind the flights, which were part of a $12 million state program to transport immigrants out of Florida. The migrants, who were flown from Texas to Florida and then on to Martha's Vineyard, served as unsuspecting props in the Republican Party's pre-midterm election culture war campaign, where GOP governors in Texas, Arizona, and Florida have packed immigrants into buses bound for blue state cities, including Washington, New York, and Chicago, in an attempt to own the libs and highlight the increase in illegal immigration on the U.S. southern border. The Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights in Boston, along with the group Alianza Americas, has filed a federal class action lawsuit against Governor DeSantis in the state of Florida on behalf of a group of affected migrants including the families who were purposefully misled into boarding the planes to Martha's Vineyard. Your reporter spoke with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights staff attorney Jake Love, who discusses the exploitation of immigrants by extremist Republican politicians for political purposes and the need for DeSantis and others to be held accountable for violating federal immigration law by engaging in acts some legal experts have deemed human trafficking or smuggling. Many of my clients were in or around the shelter system in San Antonio, Texas, um, at the time that they were approached um, by the people working with the, with the Florida governor. Um, they were lacking permanent shelter, food, a source of income. They had bounced around various churches and shelters. So they were as vulnerable as people can possibly be in the United States. Um, and they were approached with promises that were false of things like work opportunities, schooling for their children, and immigration assistance to induce their travel. And none of those things, as the world has seen, uh, based on what happened in Martha's Vineyard, none of those things had actually been secured for them. And they were left to fend for themselves uh, when they got there in a place with which they were unfamiliar, in which they did not speak the language. Um, and so the people who recruited them acted with wanton disregard for these people's safety and security once they had achieved their goal of dropping them on the vineyard. Um, and I think the most important thing to focus on here um, is the fraud and misrepresentation that was used to induce these people onto the flights. Jay, can you tell us about 
the specific legal as well as ethical violations here that might be prosecuted? I can only speak to our civil case. Um, the, any you know ongoing criminal uh, investigations are completely separate, and we are not involved with those at all. But there are a number uh, of different legal violations um, here, as we allege in the complaint. There are state law tort claims um, based on the fraud and misrepresentation. Um, you know, another thing that, that's important to note here is that my clients were specifically targeted uh, based on their race, based on their national origin, based on their immigration status. And, you know, as we discussed in detail in the complaint, that is a textbook violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution. So not only were they induced onto these planes by fraud and misrepresentation, but they were also discriminated against and targeted for disparate treatment based on their protected class, their immigration status, their national origin, uh, their, their race, et cetera. Um, so most of our claims in the complaint are based on those two things. What's the objective of the lawsuit? What, what are we trying to get out here in terms of accountability for Governor DeSantis and the Florida government? Well, yes, yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so we're seeking three very specific kinds of relief in the complaint. We're seeking injunctive relief uh, to end the transportation program, Governor DeSantis's transportation program, declaratory relief stating that the, that the, the scheme itself is unconstitutional, and monetary damages for the defendant's tortious conduct. Uh, but I think um, just more broadly, we are seeking to dissuade other governors and other state actors from engaging in this kind of fraudulent, manipulative, exploitative behavior. Um, and, you know, uh, we're hopeful that, that just by virtue of the fact that, that we're in court, that the defendants are now going to have to respond to us, they're going to have to answer for this scheme um, will 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 make others think twice about about pulling similar stunts. I did want to ask you, Jake, what is it about the current political climate in the United States that would make Governor DeSantis and these other governors who've pulled similar stunts think that exploiting and using immigrants, asylum seekers, as props in a trick here, a stunt, would be to their political advantage? That's a great question. Um, I think many of your listeners and, 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 and myself um, wish that they had a good answer for it. Um, but, but as you say, my clients were plucked out of the, the shelter system in San Antonio and were thrown into a political firestorm, and they did not consent to that, obviously. You know, they were hoping to travel to Martha's Vineyard to find a better life for themselves, uh, to find some kind of permanent shelter, to find work, to find schooling for their children. Um, and, you know, essentially they've been subjected to um, a, a massive public backlash. Um, there are, you know, lots of people with strong opinions about this. Um, and in fact, you know, my organization was so worried about the public backlash to this situation that we filed a motion to proceed under pseudonyms. Uh, which means that my clients will be able to proceed anonymously. And part of our argument in support of that motion was that um, there are there is a reasonable expectation that my clients will be subjected to violence and threats of violence uh, if they're forced to move forward in this litigation uh, with their names publicly known. Um, and luckily, the judge granted that motion. Um, but you know, part of the problem with this whole situation is that these people were vulnerable. They were preyed upon. 
and they were thrown into the middle of a very heated public debate in this country that they had no intention of being a part of. That was Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights staff attorney Jake Love. Learn more about the federal class action lawsuit filed against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Three years ago, on March 15, 2019, an estimated 1.4 million young people and supporters in 128 countries skipped school or work for what was then the largest youth-led day of climate protests in history. September 23 this year saw the fourth youth-led global climate strike, with young people demanding that their leaders take urgent action to protect humanity and all living things from climate catastrophe. In New Haven, Connecticut, high school students active in the local climate movement and some alumni now in college led a rally around the city's downtown green and marched to City Hall where they conducted a die-in on the steps, sounding a drum once for each year of an action on the climate since the 1992 Rio Climate Summit. For the past several years, this group of young people have promoted climate education, green jobs, and renewable energy-fueled public transportation and electrification. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Patricia Joseph, an active member of the New Haven Climate Movement, who graduated from high school last spring and is currently a first-year student at Yale University in New Haven. Here, Joseph, who served as the September 23rd Climate Strike Rally's co-MC, discusses her group's recent actions and demands on city government to implement proactive climate policies. So New Haven Climate Movement is a grassroots organization in New Haven, as it implies. But I think what's unique about New Haven Climate Movement is a youth action team. So we're predominantly youth-led, um, by POC um, youth-led. And what we do is we advocate for very bold government policies um, regarding like, climate change and climate action. I think that the climate crisis poses a lot of unique challenges, such as, like, sea level rise, the fact that, um, you know, there are a lot of, like, low-income by POC communities that will ultimately, like, face the brunt of the climate crisis. And we think that New Haven can do so much more in mitigating, like, the impacts of climate change, such as, you know, more community resiliency programs, um, more accessibility to green jobs and really transitioning to green jobs. And just a better job overall in um, realizing, you know, the impacts of climate change in New Haven. So as for our, like, actions, we do plan, you know, like, rallies and protests, as we saw with, you know, our global climate strike last Friday. But we also do a lot of outreach, um, such as going to local farmers markets or community events and just really, like, starting this dialogue with, like, local New Haveners on how we can better reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, what the government should do, and how we can prioritize not only like climate action, but climate justice as well. Patricia Joseph, I know it was the New Haven climate movement that pushed the city to declare a climate emergency, which the city did in September of 2019. But, you know, so often people work really hard to get a governmental body to declare a climate emergency, 
And when that happens, the government seems to think that's the end, not the beginning. So how do you feel the city of New Haven is as a partner? With regards to, like, you know, partnering with any government institution, it's really just about being annoying, like pestering, and just, like, finding the right people to talk to and finding, like, the right alliances to talk to. For instance, like, we talk about, like, the 2019 emergency resolution and how we're trying to, you know, push actions of that sort kind of forward. And so a lot of things that we've been doing is, like, referencing that in, like, the emails and proposals that we've been sending throughout the year. Like, for instance, we've sent, like, the mayor and also, like, Giovanni Sin, the city engineer, with just a lot of, like, updates and letters about the fact that, you know, they're not doing enough. And then we would, like, also, like, you know, coordinate meetings and get updates for, like, certain projects and whether or not they're, they're getting a move on or, you know, what the problem is with that and whether or not, you know, there's enough staff or resources. Um, and I think in that regard, it did lead to one of our major successes for this year, which was getting $5 million allocated for the Carbon um, Free Future Program. The $5 million came from a, a bucket of the um, American Rescue Plan. It really involved um, more community resiliency programs insofar, like, um, the idea of, like, electrification and what it looks like to have, like, an energy-efficient home. That program actually opens up, like, training specifically for that job, specifically for people who want to work in energy efficiency and making um, jobs like that more accessible. We're also working with, like, an energy efficiency, like, a small business that partners with a lot of New Haven homes that um, also make, like, energy efficiency resources available um, to New Haven homes. So that's, like, part of what it looks like. Another part is also just getting staff um, for the climate office, which... We asked the mayor, like, again and again, that's, like, a recurring demand of having a climate office and having two key point people there or, like, several people there who can kind of, like, get a move on with all the city departments, like, transportation, and um, really, like, just push that, you know, these ideas actually turn into action. How does the New Haven climate movement connect making personal changes, like riding the bus or eating less meat, with structural changes that go beyond personal choices? Our 2023 campaign really emphasizes that individuals, organizations, as well as, you know, government institutions really take steps to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. I think it really goes back to the fact that, you know, it might not seem like there's, like, a connection between, like, riding your bike and then, like, a bold, like, law coming into place. But I think it's also about, like, thinking about how all of these actions that we do, like, the waste we accumulate, things that we do that, like, harm the earth, ultimately come back to this idea of, like, corporate greed and... I think just really being, like, reliant on this system of just corporate greed and not not really thinking about how, like, your actions kind of actually perpetuate, you know, these systems of, like, government policies. So, like, for instance, if more people ride their bike, then the government can see that and they can see, well, more people are riding their bike. So this might mean that, you know, we need to really, like, have more safe street infrastructure. We need to make sure that bike lanes are safe and implemented. And in that way, you know, individuals and governments work together to really, like, create this change. So I think individual action kind of, like, shows institutions, you know, what policies need to be enacted, that a lot of people are, like, you know, taking a more environmentally conscious approach. It it makes more sense for, like, a policy to be passed when individuals are, like, acting and behaving in a more, like, environmentally conscious sort of way. That was Patricia Joseph an activist with the New Haven Climate Movement. Learn more about the youth-led global climate strikes actions and demands by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. 
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZBC in Newton, Massachusetts, KGHI in Westport, Washington, Global Community Radio Nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.